It's a joy to be with you today. I bring you greetings from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. Thank you, Dave, for your kind prayers for us this morning. We do pray often for you, and it's wonderful to be able to be here with you. And thank you, Dave, for that prayer of faith, praying that we'll be done in just a little while. Really, brother. All right. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. While you're going there, uh, I know that like you, uh, or that you like, like us as a church, often see pastors go out from you to pastor other congregations. And in these last uh, 10 or 12 months, our congregation has seen five or six men go out to be pastors of other churches, and they've asked me to uh, go and speak at their installation services where they begin their public ministries. And so I've had a lot of time over this last year to reflect on pastoral ministry, even more than I normally do. And one of the things that's been interesting to me as I've preached in these various churches has been the response of the people in the churches saying, thank you for teaching us about pastoring. Which may seem strange because most people sitting there aren't pastors. But they say we just so rarely get teaching on what it means to be a pastor. And yet, you know, the, the main people who make sure the pastor is doing what he should do is really you. Uh, the church, if you don't know, if you're not instructed from God's word what Dave and the other pastors here should be doing, how do you know if they're doing what they should be doing? So what's a good place for us to go and think about that together? Well, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So we want to look in our time together, in our, our brief time, Dave, uh, with um, at three marks of a faithful ministry uh, of the word, a faithful minister, a real minister. If you're not familiar with 1 Corinthians, it's a great book to look at. Uh, Paul had started the church in Corinth, he had planted it, and the church in Corinth was troubled by a lot of people coming into Corinth saying that they were Christians and yet leading the church astray. So this is a very interesting and timely letter that God the Holy Spirit inspired for us to be able to tell what is true and accurate and faithful gospel ministry. So in First Corinthians chapter 4 there's a striking contrast between the, the real ministers of Christ and the fake ones, the imposters. And so I think we find that the pastor's understanding of his own role here in three marks. If you're taking notes, I see you have space for notes in your bulletin, three marks of a real minister. And the first mark of a real minister is a cross-centered message. Look there in chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 1. You see the phrase there in verse 1, the mysteries of God. Let me read chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, I love that phrase there in verse 1, the mysteries of God. That's what a real minister is all about. And that's why 
Paul says these Corinthians shouldn't be dividing over competing loyalties between different ministers or different ministries or preachers. Uh, in short, they're not the ones who are appointed ultimately to judge the preachers of the Gospels. Paul saw an important principle at stake here. Really, it's God's prerogative and his alone to finally judge because everything is his gift. Everything is done to his ends, to his purposes. Ministers of the gospel especially are stewards of his mysteries, God's mysteries, his secret things, the gospel. You know what a steward is. A steward is someone who has something to use it or manage its use, but he doesn't own it. Well, God has entrusted his servants with the message of the crucified Messiah. Uh, Dave doesn't own that message. The other pastors here don't own that message. Uh, I certainly don't own that message. Now, that, that message is the mystery of God. Well, Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand that these servants are judged by whether or not they're faithful to their master. And again, their master isn't the Corinthian congregation. It certainly wasn't the world around them that seemed to control them with their standards. Look again at verse 1. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul is saying us, that's Paul the apostle. So even the apostles uh, were, were ministers, servants, not masters. They were fundamentally servants not of the Corinthians, but fundamentally servants of Christ. I love the way the Bible commenter Matthew Henry put it. They had no authority to propagate their own fancies but to spread the Christian faith. They were sent out to preach the gospel and see churches created. You know, I've often recounted a conversation that I had with a Roman Catholic friend when I first moved to Washington. I had prepared a a review of a new biography of William Tyndale. Tyndale is the one who first translated the Bible into English. And uh, his, uh, the, I think it was the 500th anniversary of his birth. It was back in 1994. So a bunch of new books came out, and I had written an address on one of those things and was supposed to give this address. And this Roman Catholic friend of mine at this meeting had just written a review of this biography in the local newspaper. So looking for somebody to talk about standing around at this meeting, I said, so what did you think of the new biography of William Tyndale? And my friend, being a Roman Catholic, said to me in a kind of provocative way, he said, well... It was pretty good, but, you know, it had that typical Protestant squint. And he knew I was a Protestant minister. And I said, well, what do you mean, that typical Protestant squint? He said, well, you know, it participated in that myth that the the Bible made the church. We all know the church made the Bible. And so I thought, well, what should I do, you know? Should I be polite? I mean, it's his kind of meeting, you know, his Coke I'm drinking. But, um, you know, I decided... You know, no, don't bother being polite. It doesn't matter if I'm ever invited back. And I just said, well, Rob, that's ridiculous. Uh, God's people have never made God's word. God's word has always made God's people. From when God spoke and the worlds were created, to Genesis 3 when the word of promise comes after the fall, to Genesis 12 when his word goes out to Abram and he believes and he is becomes the father of the faithful, to Ezekiel 37, when we see the vision of the valley of the dry bones and, and God's word comes and life comes to supremely John 1, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. To, to Romans 10, where we see that faith comes by hearing the word. Uh, God's people have never made God's word. God's word has always made God's people. Friends, Paul knew that. That's what he's telling the Corinthians here. God's word has created his people. 
Friends, that's what we're about here in this church. I can say that not even as a member of this local church, just knowing many of you who are, having prayed for this church from its beginning. Friends, this church is about the Word of God. We're about what God has done. So our understanding that we are about the work of God and His Word very practically influences the way we understand the ministry. I remember telling the the committee that was interviewing me 23 years ago to be the pastor of the church in Washington that I was committed to letting everything at this church that depended upon me fail if it needed to in order for me to remain faithful to preaching God's word. That's the main thing I was being called to do. Well, friends, that's the kind of priority that I learned from passages like this, from realizing that what we are as ministers is fundamentally ministers of the word of God, the secrets of God, the the gospel. If you're visiting today, you don't know what that message is. That message is the great news that God has sent his word to us. And the word that he has sent is, is more than merely a prophet. It's a savior. This word is someone who tells us not just the truth about God, but also Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has given himself to live a life of perfect trust in our Heavenly Father and then die on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute for all of us who would ever repent of our sins and trust in him. And then God has raised him from the dead and his sacrifice has been presented to his Heavenly Father and he has accepted it for all of us that would turn from our sins and trust in him. You and I can be united to Christ in faith and so be received by God now and forever. And we can know that. We can live with that certainty. That's the mysteries of God that were being heralded. And you see, it's important for God to be glorified that this message be heralded. Why is it in some churches it seems to be unusual to see someone growing in Christ Well, because I think sometimes we've allowed people in some churches to continue on as members in our congregation, but who don't repent of their sin, who are not really given over to this good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, we want to be in churches that have pastors that are committed to knowing the truth about Jesus Christ. We want to have pastors who've given themselves to Christ supremely, who've given up everything in the world in order to be able to study and preach God's Word. So gospel ministers, Christian ministers, are servants and stewards of God's Word. That's what they deliver. It's what Paul said here in verse 1, that the mysteries of God. Uh, we're stewards of the church so that we care for a congregation. Uh, Dave doesn't own this congregation. He's not died for this congregation. No, it's Christ who's died for a sheep. I I love the name steward. It's a great name for a minister. We don't own the church. It's not ours. We are God's employees. God is our boss. We ultimately work for him. And the main task he has given us is making the secret things of God, the, the gospel, known about the crucified Messiah. And what's the one thing that such stewards need to be above all? Faithful. Look at verse 2 again. Now it is required, verse 2, moreover it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Now of course even making this positive statement was an implicit condemnation of anybody among them who had not been trustworthy, of anyone who had been unfaithful. Now according to 1 Peter, all Christians are stewards, 1 Peter 4.10. But ministers must especially be trustworthy. 
We teachers of God's word will be held accountable according to a stricter judgment, we read in James chapter 3. So we're kind of like uh, bankers who've been entrusted with a great deposit. It, It rests on us especially. And so we ministers of the word must be faithful in our work because of the great value of what's been committed to us. We're concerned not to be original, but reliable as we recount the gospel of the crucified Jesus. And if the Corinthians thought less of Paul because his commitment to this message, or if other people dismissed him, or if Paul himself even began to stray from this message, well, friends, none of these had commissioned them. None of these had commissioned Paul. Uh, The Corinthians hadn't initially commissioned him. Paul hadn't commissioned himself. No, so none of them had the authority to change the message that had been entrusted to him. He had been called by Jesus Christ. Only Christ could give him his message. So again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm delighted you're here. Please keep coming to the meetings of this church. If you want to understand what we Christians know, we have a message that in one sense is not really popular anywhere. Uh, Our message is a strange one. It, It wasn't created with focus groups. It wasn't invented somewhere through polling research. It's this message of gaining forgiveness through faith in Christ crucified and returning to judge. And this message is just offensive to people's pride. Uh, We feel like we shouldn't be so bad that someone would need to die for us. And yet, friends, it's a truth. We have lived lives made in God's image as people not like God has meant us to be. And in his great love, he has pursued us in, son, in his son. Paul says here in verses 3 and 4, look at verses 3 and 4. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul isn't saying here that self-examination is wrong. In fact, he calls for it later in the letter. But that our own self-assessment, our own conscience being clear isn't your ultimate guide. Did you ever think about that? You want to have a clear conscience, but you know, your conscience can make mistakes. Your conscience needs to be educated by the Word of God. Self-esteem can't be the final arbiter of judgment because we esteem ourselves so highly. We are called to make provisional judgment. So Paul will make some provisional judgments in this next chapter coming up in chapter 5 very forcefully. But no mere human is our ultimate judge because, as Paul says here in verse 4, he will be judged by the Lord. Friend, the Lord is the one who ultimately will judge each one of us. He is the one whose judgment we need to care about most. You see the freedom there is in thinking that. In knowing that we are judged ultimately, as Paul says here, only by one. And knowing that that one can be well disposed to you. Uh, I love the way Don Carson has succinctly put it. What matters most in God's universe is what God thinks of us. It's true, isn't it? What matters most in God's universe is what God thinks of us. So assure yourself of God's verdict through Christ and you can have a more accurate regard 
for these judgments of men he mentions here in verse 3. But remember, you cannot please God if you live to please men. You cannot please God if you live to please men. I often think of the words of the Scottish pastor John Brown in a letter of advice to one young man he'd trained as a pastor who'd recently been called to be a pastor of a very small church. And he writes to him, I know the vanity of your heart, uh, that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brothers around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat. You will think you have had enough. Can you hear the echoes in that of this idea of a steward? That ministers are those who are called to give an account to God? I think of Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. So a, a true minister of Christ, Paul is saying here, is living to please Christ, his one and only coming judge. That's the time for the ultimate judgment, not now, and not by people like us. Look at verse 5 again. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Do you know one of the things that happens if you go into the gospel ministry? You will be slandered. People will say things about you that are false. And sometimes they'll say it with evil motives. Sometimes they'll say it with honestly good motives in their own hearts. But they will misrepresent you and they will say things that are not true. And if you're a gospel minister, you can't then start going into spending all your time trying to defend yourself. You have to decide, am I going to start making my ministry about me? Or am I going to continue to make the ministry about Jesus Christ? Friends, Paul is telling the Corinthians here that he was giving his whole ministry to proclaiming Jesus Christ. Uh, The Corinthians he was speaking to wrongly esteemed worldly eloquence. Teachers impressive by worldly standards, by their external appearance, by their striking manners. But it's incredibly inappropriate, Paul says, to take a worldly comparative pride between Christian teachers over one another. Like trying to compare Paul and Apollos or or someone else. Because if they are all true Christian teachers, they've all been commissioned by the same master with the same purpose, the same message Really all for the glory of God and the extension and proclaiming of his reign. So to begin to get partisan and be, well, I'm of this person or I'm of that person, as the Corinthians were, was to begin to lose sight of the value of this one message and to be distracted by the messenger and the particular gifts this messenger has over that one. And when that happens, there's not a far distance between following a particular messenger beyond his faithfulness to the word of God. So you may really like the way Dave preaches, but if you only like listening to Dave, that's a big problem. You want to like the message that Dave brings. You want that Christ-centered, cross-centered message to be the thing that you want to hear all the days of your life. Whoever brings you that message, commissioned by God, is someone coming as a messenger from God for your soul. That's what a true Christian ministry is. Is like. Look at verse 6 again. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, 
that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to be committed to the message and to cherish faithfulness to the cross in their preachers, whoever their preacher happens to be. So we should be very careful to remember that as ministers, we are to be esteemed as instruments pointing to Christ. We have to be faithful to deliver this message. So with this understanding, Paul and Apollos were not in competition. And Paul explained to them everything in the opening chapters of this letter. I was talking to a pastor of a, of a large church in our area who's going to be looking for a new senior pastor soon. And he said, well, we've, we've, got, we've got this guy who we're thinking about, but we've also got this guy who we're thinking about. So we're thinking about this next year having this guy preach this many times, this guy preaching that many times. And I just said to him, oh, brother, don't do that. It's not a horse race. You don't need the best pastor in the world. It's not a competition. You just need a good pastor. So just pick one of them that you think will do a decent job and have him preach. And if the people like him, just go with him. You don't want to create a wrong, worldly, carnal kind of competitiveness. It's not like that in serving Christ. So we should be careful to remember always that as ministers, we're to be valued as those who are pointing to Christ. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Friends, those, those three questions there have been some of the most important questions in the Bible down through the history of Christianity. From Augustine to Martin Luther, God has used verse 7 here to powerfully affect people and humble them and exalt himself. So let these questions echo in your own soul for a little while this, this day. What do you have that you did not receive? The last Sunday night of his life, John Knox reported that he was being tempted by Satan to trust in himself and to rejoice or boast in himself. But, Knox said to his servant, I repulsed Satan with this sentence. What do you have that you did not receive? Remember what Paul said back in chapter 1 about boasting. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, if you ever have a preacher who boasts, make sure they're boasting in the Lord. And do know that whatever we have, we only have by the grace of God through the cross of Christ by which God has satisfied his love and his justice, his mercy and his holiness, and he's displayed it all to the world as he's saved all who trusted him. So a gospel minister has this message at the center of his message. And the delivery of this message is at the center of his role as a pastor. The second mark we see here of a gospel minister is not just a cross-centered message, but a cross-centered life. Now, I'm not going to talk about this quite as much, but look down at verse 8. Let me read uh, read this paragraph, beginning of verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Friends, look at that phrase there in verse 9. Like men sentenced to death. That was Paul's experience. That was his life. This true apostle had a Christ-like life. In stark contrast to the Corinthians' claims of prosperity, you realize Paul is being kind of sarcastic with them here in this passage. He's using some very sharp, ironic questions to deflate their pride and reorient them to the cross and to what Christ himself had taught about the people who would follow after him. Now, heavy irony and a number of sarcastic statements are not Paul's normal way of teaching. But it is not outside the bounds of appropriate communication sometimes. In fact, irony could be particularly useful in helping the Corinthians to see how these false apostles had confused them, how sort of topsy-turvy their their view of the Christian life had become. And so Paul Paul launches here at them in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. You see what Paul is doing here? He is, he is mocking the Corinthians' prosperity. Some of it may have been real prosperity, some of it imagined. Either way, it's clear that many in the Corinthian church were feeling confident and fulfilled. It sounds like some modern faith teachings that I've heard. You know, when you go to church and you, you sneeze, you're not supposed to say that you have a cold because that's confessing something negative. You're supposed to claim your, your blessing over the cold. <laughs> Friends, that's ridiculous. Jesus was crucified. There's nothing in, in us trying to fool ourselves about negative things in this fallen world. Some of these false teachers may have been presenting that kind of stuff to the Corinthians. Paul wanted to make sure they didn't fall for it, regardless of how they felt. Paul called them back to the reality, and he pointed them to the obvious fact that they don't reign. Perhaps they had accepted some kind of idea of the second coming in which their their new spiritual life was their reign. But Paul points out if this life is the kingdom of God that Christ promised, then Christ's apostles certainly have a special place in it. Look again at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul is saying, look, my life is a little more humble than the one some of you are claiming. And he uses images of the procession and the spectacles to communicate how he feels. In the military processions at the time, uh, the last ones were the prisoners. And among the, the last of those, the lowest in rank and the most despised. And you can understand why that was. Because as the parades went along with all the animals and the horses, they weren't self-cleaning. The animals left their trail. And the further back you were in the parade on foot, the more you walked through the accumulated remains of the parade. And that, Paul says, is his experience of life. Very different than reigning that they were claiming to be doing. And then such processions would go to Corinth's theater, which seated 18,000. 
And the most wretched was left for the last show and the last spectacle of the day. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's what I feel like. How different that is from what the Corinthians had been taught by these imposters. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul is sarcastically contrasting himself with the Corinthian claims. This is how they each saw themselves. Paul understood that he was foolish in the world's eyes and weak and dishonored. But at least some of the Corinthians were fancying themselves to be wise and strong and honored. And they had cobbled together some illusions or had replaced the cross with something much more acceptable at the center of the Christian life. Again, Matthew Henry, he says he thinks they were self-deceived. Those do not commonly know themselves best who think best of themselves. Those do not commonly know themselves best who think best of themselves. I wonder what you think of yourself this morning. I wonder if you've come with a pretty high regard for yourself. The Christian message of a crucified Christ calls us to a different goal than we would have had otherwise in this life. We're no longer concerned with what the world that made the decision to crucify Christ, what the world calls wise. We no longer live for what the world calls strength, the world that opposes God. We're not captivated by applause and honor from those who've rejected Jesus, the wisdom of God. My friend, if you're here and you're living from a worldly point of view for worldly honor, aren't you beginning to notice how unsatisfying it is? You always need another commendation, another promotion, another compliment, another raise, another set of friends approving or admiring. And do any of those promises ever fulfill you? Do any of them last? Friends, there's a better way. And as strange as it may sound, Paul is setting it out here. The Christ rejected and put to death on the cross actually saves us by his death on the cross. We read in Isaiah, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, if the one whom we follow was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and if he was pierced and crushed and punished and wounded, then we can't be too surprised that some of that may happen to us in this world. It's not all preaching at churches or finding a new Bible study you really like. Especially we might expect this to happen to his ministers. Not because by his death we bear sin, but because in our lives we live in a way this world rejects. 
So in Corinth, eloquent orators were, were prized. They were celebrated and honored and well paid. And it seems that some of this had crept into the church, that men were honored regardless of the actual message, so long as they entertained people, so long as people liked to listen to them. Ministers of Christ are happy to be despised if by their being despised, somehow the gospel is displayed. Because our goal is the display of the gospel. As Paul would later write to the Corinthians, quoting the Lord's response, denying his request, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I love the way Jim Elliot, the missionary, summarized the bargain. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 1, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Gospel ministers of Christ and his cross have experienced this and are confident in it. Paul was sharing in the rejection of Christ in his life. Look at verse 11. That's what's going on. Verse 11. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. What's very interesting about these verses here in verse 11 and verse 12, the tenses of the verb are present. In other words, Paul is not just saying once this happened to him in the past. He is saying this is his experience of life again and again. This is what Paul was continuing to experience when he was writing this letter. He wasn't writing from some great cathedral in Europe or some cushy university lectureship. No, he sounds more like a refugee from Damascus. But then his hope isn't meant to be here in this world. Gospel ministers have their hope stored elsewhere. So Paul continues there in verse 12. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So he, he works with his hands. He preaches the gospel. He experiences rejection from this world. And he keeps on going even when his clothes are threadbare and he is bone tired. Remember in Acts 18, Paul worked as a tent maker in Corinth. Uh, this worldly wisdom in Corinth wouldn't have liked that. Well-to-do folks would be embarrassed to tell their friends, hey, come and listen to this guy speak who really makes his money from making tents. He just does this on the side. They wouldn't like that. But Paul continued on. Clearly, not living for the approval of this world, like those false ministers were doing. And so when the world cursed him or persecuted him or slandered him, they weren't taking away any fr- anything from him that he had expected to keep in this world. Dave, how can you and I decide to be pastors in a world like this and expect to follow Jesus and for the world to love us? That's not how they treated Jesus. So if we're following him closely and carefully, can we be surprised if we 
participate in some of what Paul experienced here? Paul felt he had no right to well wishes from God-haters. No ultimate right to freedom. No ultimate right to a good name among those who rejected Christ. And yet Paul continued to respond to such opposition in the very way that Christ taught his followers to respond. Indeed, in the way that Christ himself had responded to his suffering. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He sees all. He will be perfectly just in his disposition of all things. Paul didn't try to paper over the opposing views of God and the world. Paul followed the one who said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Paul wrote to the Romans, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Beloved, the only way to follow Jesus is to die daily to your self-interest. When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself in order to serve others? That's a simple test of the genuineness of your following Jesus. Do you use others to serve yourself or use yourself to serve others? You realize, don't you, that your own concern for physical comfort can be an enemy of your soul. What have you found effective in undermining your own commitment to your own comfort? It can be a great aid spiritually. Biographies, examples, accountability partners, discipline. Maybe you're encouraged by the fruit you've seen in your own life and the lives of others. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying prosperity is always wrong. But prosperity is always dangerous. It can be disorienting to the Christian. And perhaps especially to elders and pastors. We must live lives that show that there are things that are worth even more than this world's prosperity. Friend, think how you can do that in your circumstances even this week. And, And pray for me that I would have a life that evidences the supremacy of Christ and his cross in my affections. Lives are part of the qualifications for elders, aren't they? So we want to live lives that are different from the lives lived in this world. A life that tells the truth, a life that gives hope to a dying world. Gospel ministers live cross-centered lives. And we understand this to be an essential part of our role as a pastor. Third mark, number three, that we see here of a gospel minister. Gospel, Christ-centered message. Gospel, Christ-centered life. And finally, cross-centered followers, number three. Look there at that last paragraph in the chapter, beginning verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Look there in verse 16. Notice Paul's call there, be imitators of me. Out of all of these initial chapters in this letter, the first sort of quarter of 1 Corinthians, these are Paul's instructions. Paul urges the Corinthians, his spiritual children, to humble themselves like the apostles and like Christ, and to stop following the foolish ways of their worldly teachers. He wants them to see, at least expose, the false ways, and he urges them instead to turn from those and follow his example. Now, is it prideful of Paul to set himself forward as a model for the Corinthians to follow? No, it wasn't. It was not prideful of Paul to put himself forward as a model. In fact, I think it's quite humble to invite investigation of a life, which Paul himself knew was far from perfect. Paul confesses his own sins. But insofar as he followed Christ, he presented his life as a light for others to follow. Surely a Christian minister should not only teach the gospel correctly and live out a Christ-like life, but he should lead others to do the same. That's how you can tell you've got a real Christian minister. Others are seeing Christ in him, and they're following the teaching. For all the severity of his language, you can see that Paul really loves these Corinthians. Look there in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Brother elders, you must love the members of your church. You must love the members of your church. You cannot serve sheep you don't love. You must love the members of your church. You can tell that Paul realized how harsh his words may have sounded, but he loves them with a fatherly love, as he explains in verse 15. He says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul knows and reminds them that he is uniquely their father in the gospel. He was the church planter who had planted the church in Corinth, the founding father of that local congregation. And there, there is a special regard, isn't there, uh, for the, those whom God used to lead us to Christ. So Paul was using that, he was using anything he could get, to dissuade these young believers from following imitation teachers with their counterfeit gospel. So he urges them there in verse 16... I urge you then, be imitators of me. Here he, he holds out his arms, as it were, through this letter, and he appeals to them, and he says to them, Look, I alone am your father, so trust me. Imitate me in living a cross-centered life. You know, children naturally mimic their parents. God made them to do that, made them to learn from us. And calling others to imitate you, well, it certainly puts pressure on you. And we hope it's the right kind of pressure. Christian preachers are models, aren't we? 
We may not necessarily be good-looking, but we're models. There's no way around it. You can't avoid it. It's part of our calling. You can't just simply say, I'm going to preach sermons, don't worry about my life. The qualifications of First Timothy 3 are about your life. No, Paul had been a model to them, and the other teachers were now being a poor model to them. So we serve Christ by being ministers of his word, and that word ministry should be accompanied by a life which acts as a sounding board, a kind of public address system like we've got going on in this room right now to expand and ratify and verify and push out our teaching strongly and further. Of course, we'll never be faithful if we only preach what we can perfectly live. One of the crosses of being a pastor is you have to realize I'm, getting, I, I'm called to get up here and preach something better than I can live. If I only preach what I can live, I'm a rotten minister. I'm going to preach the truth of God's word, and I will attempt by his Holy Spirit to live as well as I can. But friends, we should not only be prayed for and loved and obeyed and supported, we should be all of those things, for Christ's sake, but also our examples should be followed. So let me tell you as one standing here as a preacher, at least a little aware of my own sins, that this is a harrowing responsibility, but it is an unavoidable part of the job. So if I'm going to preach the Bible, I have to preach more than I could live, but I should always be trying to live by God's grace up to the message that I'm preaching through the example of Christ's power in my life to be an encouragement to others along the way. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know about this new life in Christ and his example in it. So we read in verse 17, That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved, to you, and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul knew that he could send Timothy to teach them faithfully how to live, and I'm sure it was hard for him to send away such a close friend and co-laborer especially when Paul was having to undergo such a difficult time of his own. I think that this shows something of the depth of his love for them. He wanted them not only to be taught the truth about Christ, he wanted them to see Christ-like teachers live out the faith before them, and he wouldn't rest until he knew that their own lives could be uh, shown the way better and more fully embodied uh, by someone like Timothy, whose life he knew. And that's why he he says what he does here at the end of the chapter about his own upcoming visit. And he challenges them. Some of the Corinthians had become arrogant. And he says in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. He's very sharp with them sometimes. Doesn't mean he doesn't love them. But he challenges their arrogance. He's effectively ordering them to be humble. Did you realize, Christian, that humility is actually a duty of yours? You have a duty to be humble if you're a follower of Christ. And especially for those of us who've been entrusted with authority, we are especially called to be humble. It's very important for us to remember that today because authority is everywhere misunderstood. Authority is taken to be authoritarianism. It's taken to be negative when authority is a wonderful thing. In the fall... We took up authority wrongly against God, but God was never anything but good to us. We believe Satan's lie that God can't tell us no and love us. And so we believe his lie that authority is by nature abusive. Friend, I'm so sorry if you have been abused by authority 
in this fallen world it happens. It happens in homes and families. It happens in churches and schools and businesses. It's terrible wherever it happens. But none of it means that authority itself is bad. If you have a friend who says that all authority is bad, if you yourself are tempted to that, realize you're believing one of Satan's deepest and most demonic lies. No, authority is what God himself supremely has. And it is good. You and I are not God. And we are called to relate to one who is. And that one who is is ultimately benevolent and good and is to be trusted with our entire lives. And friends, a Christian minister is supposed to be a little picture of this. That's why Christian ministers need to be humble, like Christ. Friend, how do you imagine that you can follow Christ without growing in humility? How can you think to follow him in his self-giving love without seeing your concern about yourself shrink and your concern about God and others grow? Look at how Paul finishes the chapter there in verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a gentle spirit? Paul is clear that he will come. He will investigate the claims of the arrogant among them. Interesting, he says that he will do this if the Lord is willing. I love that. It's like he'd been reading James 4.15. Anyway, even apostles are humble when they consider the future. But Paul says that when he comes, he'll investigate not their words, but their power. Because he says the kingdom of God is not about words, but power. God's rulership or reign isn't just an idea. It happens in people's lives for real. It's happening in the lives of many of us gathered in this room right now. So Paul is challenging these Corinthians. Are these false ministers religious windbags or are people actually being saved through them? And in this last verse, Paul warns them that if they do not respond to his gentle love, he will come with a whip, by which, of course, he means not a literal whip, but he means a severe reproof. That's a good reminder that in the, in the pastor's role, there is both gentleness and severity, and that both are part of Christian love, and especially the love of the minister for his congregation. So... Our congregations are part of the proof of our ministry. Even more importantly, we need congregations of people whose lives reflect the truth of the gospel that we preach. So I pray for Redeemer Church here to be a church full of those people who love each other, even as they have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God forbid that we are simply stale, dead images of Jesus, as if he hadn't given himself in dynamic self-humbling love. And I pray that he will give you pastors who are examples of God's holiness and God's love. Friends, looking back over this chapter, I am struck by the combination of humility and confidence that Paul displayed in his words and his life. And in this, I think he's supposed to be a model for all of us. We should all desire to be bold in helping others grow in Christ, and we should risk ourselves being willing to be even misunderstood in order to serve others. That's what Paul is challenging these Corinthians to look for when he said that in the teaching and lives and effects of these apostles in their midst, they should know they're not true ministers because a cross-centered message, a cross-centered life, and cross-centered followers are 
what it means to be a true minister of Jesus Christ. I pray that that kind of ministry be here in this church and be forwarded to it through many other churches. Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess that at the center of the message you've entrusted to us is the cross. We give you praise, though, that that is not the end of the message that you call us to. That on through the cross of this world's rejection is the eternal acceptance from you of all who are in Christ. Lord, we pray that each one of us here would resolve that we would take being in a loving relationship with you, the great and glorious God, forever and leading others into that relationship as the end of our lives, as our purpose and goal. Make that true for every elder and pastor here and for every Christian. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.